0: Today, we're speaking with Dr. Cindy McCullough about her new book, Sewer of Progress, Corporations, Institutionalized Corruption, and the Struggle for the Santiago River. Cindy McCullough is Professor Researcher at the Center for Research and Advanced Studies in Social Anthropology, CIESAS, in Guadalajara, Mexico. She has her PhD in social science from CSIS and her master's in environmental studies from York University. Her research interests include social environmental conflicts, water management, environmental regulation, industrial pollution, and environmental justice. Dr. McCullough, thank you for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Oh, thanks so much for the invitation and the opportunity to speak about uh, my new book, Brad.
0: I'd like to start off by reading the the quote from the Chicago Tribune um, that you include at the uh, right at the opening of the book in the introduction. Uh, On March 10th, 1898, the Chicago Tribune wrote about uh, the Santiago River in this region in western Mexico. Quote, there exists a masterpiece of nature's nature's handiwork, unrivaled in its own peculiar beauties and environments. It is the great waterfall of Wanakatlan. One's ear gradually becomes conscious of a low distant murmur, which steadily increases to a deep rumble, and from that to a mighty roar, and presently the tram car comes to a standstill at the very brink of a high precipice, from which is viewed through clouds of vaporous mist the sights of thousands of tons of water plunging over a wall of gray granite in a steady, unbroken cataract 360 feet in width for a sheer distance of 60 feet into a seething, eddying vortex below. For a time, the mind is apt to be held in rapt contemplation of the grand spectacle. Then, by degrees, the senses are awakened to the various characteristics, the effects, and weird vagaries of the foaming, falling waters, Chicago Tribune from 1898. Uh, Cindy, what did you find when you uh, first visited um, the Santiago River and the communities um, uh, in in the river basin? And um, tell us just a little bit about the origins of this book, Sewer of Progress.
1: Sure. Yes. Well, this was um, around the year 2000. I had. Uh, been in in mexico for a couple of years and i had been working a little bit with uh organic campesino farmer from one of the riverside municipalities um in the community of guanacatlán and of course when i first saw the santiago river which was now about uh, 25 years ago in 1998 i encountered a, a very different panorama uh i encountered communities that sort of turned their back to a river that was a source of foul odors, uh, toxic foam, and, and disease. And even though at that time I, I wasn't there related to the river, um, I first went as part of a, a short project I was working on with Friends of the Earth Canada that uh, had to do with agricultural issues and pesticides, which is when I met this organic farmer, Ezekiel Macias. And and then uh, when I was doing my my master's at, at York University, as you mentioned, I continued working with uh, Ezequiel. And so traveling from Guadalajara uh, which is where, where I continue to live now, traveling there to Wanakatlan and crossing this bridge uh, over the Santiago River, right over the waterfall that is described uh, in this quote from the Chicago Tribune. And as I mentioned in the book, and this is, uh, this is true, I would be coming along in the bus, and when I saw that we were getting near the river, I would take a very deep breath and try and hold my breath until we had crossed over the waterfall, crossed over the river, and were getting a little bit further away because the odor was so foul. And this left, you know, lingering questions in my mind. Obviously, it was something I talked about with Ezekiel and other people in the community at that time. You know, How did this happen? Why was the river like this? And, you know, about this same time, community groups started to form um, because of the health effects. Uh, You know, I could, you know, just my own very limited experience hold my breath as I was going over the bridge, but the people living in the communities obviously were living with this river and breathing the toxins that are emitted by the river day in and day out.
0: Yes. And you talk about, I mean, just to drive home the, the extremity of the, the the sensory experience of of the river nowadays, and well, uh, twenty years plus ago as well. You from August two thousand three, you cite this instance when you were at the bridge. I think, but you su- suggest, "quote I run from the bridge because that foam uh, burns, it leaves rashes, it infects."
1: Yes, that. Uh- my first incursion, let's say, into the trying to understand the topic of the river was in making a documentary video that was focused on the broader basin. Um, the Santiago River is part of the Lerma Chapala Santiago uh, Basin. And we were looking at what was happening in, in Lake Chapala as well as in the Santiago River at that time. And in a way, we were fortunate Uh, when we reached the waterfall uh, that day because there was a lot of foam. So in terms of capturing in video how dramatic the situation is, it was a, a very lucky moment. But when the foam that was being whipped up in a, a small whirlwind, when it started to come over the bridge and could have fallen on us, then I ran off. And of course, uh, the cameraman at that time, uh, Javier Romo, um, stayed to capture the images. But, you know, and I'm laughing about this, but I also um, spoke to, to people um patients now who have gone through kidney transplants, who were students in a school overlooking the waterfall and where that foam would reach the balcony of the school. And as children, they were playing with this foam. Um, obviously, it's not just the foam that would have uh, affected their health, but the issue of kidney disease, of cancer, of other very serious disease, of very high prevalence in in these communities um, is one of the main sort of concerns that sparked local organizations to denounce the situation of the Santiago River. And those organizations and that work is what sparked me, um, you know, to continue working on this issue and to want to do this research, which isn't focused, let's say, on, on the environmental health tragedy per se, but on what I, Argue and and firmly believe is one of the main causes of this dramatic situation, which is the industrial pollution of the Santiago River and the institutional logics that leave the industrial sector basically unregulated in this region.
0: Yes, could you elaborate on that a little more and uh, in terms of the institutional uh, logics that have facilitated this? Um, incredibly destructive and tragic situation there. Um, The neoliberal logics, as you put it um, in the book. Uh, And then just say anything else you'd like in terms of the book's um, kind of main arguments and contributions to to a broader uh, literature, if you like.
1: Sure. I mean, I am very focused on, uh, in the book, on this particular case, but it can't be understood um, without looking not only at what's happening in Mexico, but where this type of manufacturing in the global south sort of fits into the global economy. So we have this dramatic river pollution, which is affecting Uh, the lives and health of several hundred thousand uh, people in Riverside communities. And we have protests ongoing since the early 2000s calling for river cleanup, denouncing the situation. And so I started this research with a very rather simplistic question. I don't think it's... uh, simple to answer, but a question of basically, why is this river continuing to be polluted by industrial effluents despite, you know, several decades now, of community protests and demands for cleanup. And we've seen government response, of course, it's not a complete inaction, but the response has evaded systematically any control of industrial sources of pollution. So, when I tried to answer this question, I thought it was important to understand how are the institutions that are involved here, both on the government side and in the private sector, what are their logics? What are the logics of environmental regulation? And then from industry to the extent possible, how do they understand their role in this situation? Uh, discursively in public when they've had to um, give voice uh, to respond to the situation, and also in the day-to-day practices of uh, complying with environmental laws and regulations, and how do they um, give voice to what they believe is their environmental performance. So this took me to two main arguments, basically, or... Um, argument structured around two main concepts, one being institutionalized corruption. And here, uh, I always think it's important to state, because when we hear the word corruption automatically, um, we go to the illicit enrichment of public servants, which is certainly any definition of corruption normally centered around that concept. But with institutionalized corruption, I'm I'm not referring to acts uh, that lead to the illicit enrichment of public servants, but to a whole systemic logic of how environmental regulations work in the country, not to the benefit of individual public servants, but to the benefit of the private sector more broadly. So we have a system, very lax environmental regulations that are very scantily enforced, very poorly enforced. The system is constructed, um, the logics of the system are constructed such that there's a very high dependence on self-monitoring, self-regulation. A lot of, in terms of water pollution, a lot of the information that is generated is self-reported information, which is, again, scantily Uh, enforced or overseen. And we also have, uh, which I found one of the most concerning aspects, you have the private sector very much embedded in the processes by which the environmental regulations themselves are developed and, and approved. Also, in terms of the private sector, because I think there is a, a tendency when we're talking about this type of issue, and even from the social movements, you know, to look towards the state and to demand from the state. But we don't often sort of turn towards the private sector and put them under the same scrutiny, even from academic research. And there are challenges, and maybe we can delve into that uh speaking about later chapters, there are challenges in terms of how can we subject these private actors to uh, the scrutiny of academic research when there is so little um, information that is publicly available about their environmental performance or their um, polluting activities. And In terms of the private sector, I found it important to understand the logics of how you have this ongoing pollution of the Santiago River to speak of a myth of the multinational. Um, In this particular river basin, what I identified up until the point of this waterfall, which is where we have the most dramatic health effects for the community, about 700 manufacturing uh, facilities Covering a very wide range, different types of industry, among them about seventy-one um, non-Mexican corporation, foreign-owned corporations, which were mainly in um, the electronics industry, automotive industry, chemical industry, and food and beverages. We also have the the tequila uh, important tequila distilleries here in the basin. So. Why is it important to talk about a myth of the multinational? I think for sort of two reasons. On the one hand, the idea that um, the large corporations are um, environmentally benign, that environmental uh, that large transnational corporations go above and beyond Mexican regulations um, because they have their own strict uh, internal codes of conduct with which they must comply. This becomes uh, a discourse at the local level that justifies not uh, inspecting or not overseeing the actions of these types of corporations. And more broadly, it justifies a system based on on self-monitoring and even generating environmental regulations via consensus. So I think that you know, these ideas of trying to understand the the logics of environmental regulation in terms of institutionalized corruption and understanding how the idea of the transnational corporation as a green environmentally responsible actor is not only relevant, you know, for this case, but can help understand other types of environmental conflicts involving industry involving um this type of uh, pollution or other environmental impacts of transnational corporations in the global south that is my uh hope anyhow
0: and you talk about um in in, uh the introductory section too in introducing some concepts that are that have been helpful and and um built upon here, um, the notion of uh, Smith's notion of ruling relations, and I think you do a really good job throughout this book of kind of um, engaging with all the different institution, institutional and uh, individual and community actors from top to bottom of the kind of social um, spectrum. So could you talk a little about how this ruling relations approach works i mean you were kind of getting into it a little bit anyway but and then how this it's it's at one point you note how it's it's so problematic sometimes to um focus on the version of the state that you mentioned that um doesn't really square with the kind of uh neoliberal capitalist states that um um Mexico represents, and other other um, governments as well and arrangements
1: yes, um when I was wanting to do this this research, and I knew it was obviously going to be important to look at these institutional logics and how environmental regulations actually work, but also the the power relations between government actors and the private sector which is um, not necessarily easy to to view certainly not directly accessible um, as an individual researcher um, I was very happy when I started to read about institutional ethnography which is uh, Dorothy Smith's uh, Methodological strategy or or approach, um, wherein she describes how we can study these ruling relations um, that involve, obviously, um, both economic actors, political actors, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what this approach, to me, uh, contributed was a, a way to think about how we can scrutinize these logics and these actors also and importantly by understanding that a lot of these relations are mediated via documents policies inspection reports and particularly looking at my case you know how could I understand the actual way that environmental regulations are put into action one way would be to obtain and get gain access to all of these types of documents, uh, meeting minutes in committees where we have the private sector industry actors represented with the government, et cetera, et cetera. And so this approach based in institutional ethnography and understanding the important role of documents allowed a vision into understanding um, really the power of the private sector in government. And that—that that is one of the main sort of points or arguments in the book. And as you mentioned, um, we have to recognize that with the shift in the early to mid-1980s uh, in Mexico towards a neoliberal strategy, you had a very sort of uh, faithful, they, some um, commentators have said, adoption of neoliberal policies in in the country, which makes it a very interesting case to look at. And we see these strategies that um, Noel Castry has described as um, neoliberal fixes, where you have the private sector very much empowered uh, to take quite a protagonistic role in um, environmental regulations, particularly. So, um, in that sense, this is a very interesting case of free market environmentalism uh, taken to quite an an extreme degree, where at the same time, you know, from an outward perspective, and this is why uh, it was important to look at the actual... mm, laws and levels of enforcement get into a lot of detail, from an outside perspective, a lot of commentators say, oh, Mexico has very good uh, environmental laws and regulations. So for the transnational corporations, there's no accusation of environmental dumping because um, Mexico has this apparently robust legal framework. So. That was why it is important to really go into the details uh, and see that a lot of it is actually environmental uh, simulation of regulation.
0: Go into quite a bit of the uh, myths and realities at play here um, in terms of, as you mentioned, um, environmental regulations that are on the books in Mexico, but then on the ground, kind of what people living in the midst of uh, those contexts know, uh, is going on, you know, um, and just as a historian, I must also say that, um, you know, we tend to be kind of, um, obtuse about our, uh, methodologies in, in what we publish, but I really appreciate this book. Um, in addition to the introduction, you laying out some key aspects of, uh, the research process and methodology there's an appendix to uh, that includes a great section on research techniques you know and um, including the analysis of documents like financial and sustainability reports advertising materials of the different companies um, pretty much just everything you could possibly uh, get your hands on I know um, So I appreciated that um, kind of transparency in terms of in terms of your own research. And then I know you've just uh, been witnessing and been involved in uh, some of the activism and um, the struggle to to kind of right the wrongs in that situation, too, over the years. So um, I appreciated that uh, research component of the book um maybe we could say a little bit more uh moving into a couple different sections of the book um chapter one you deal with really effectively with the history and background and you mentioned that um when you uh, first got to river basin communities and, and kind of wondered what was going on people Wanted to start by telling you uh, what uh, the Rio Santiago was. So, could you say a little bit about what it was?
1: Certainly. And the quote that you opened up with alluded to that because the river, and particularly at this site, at the waterfall, you know, was a tourist attraction. It was called Mexico's Niagara and, and visitors would, would come to appreciate uh, this waterfall. In this area, things started to, to change um, in the late 1890s when you had a hydroelectric dam constructed uh, at the waterfall. And then the installation of a, a textile factory forming a factory town. That is um, how the municipality of El Salto, um, which is one of the the two communities on on either side of the waterfall, that's how it was founded as a factory town for this uh, textile factory. And from there, certainly you don't have the the quick growth of an industrial corridor, um, but it starts slowly um, in the 1930s near where the river um, is born in Lake Chapala, you had Nestle set up um, its first factory in the region. Now there are several in that municipality. Um, then uh, it's not until the 1940s you have an American chemical factory and near the Nestle factory on the other side of the River Salonese, which I delve into these two factories in, in and companies in greater detail later, later in the book. And slowly you have a few other chemical companies coming in downriver, and then it's really not until the 1970s, 80s, and then of course with the um, North American Free Trade Agreement in the 90s that you start to see the growth of industry, particularly here to the south of the Guadalajara metropolitan area, in El Salto, and in the whole subbasin, which is the most polluted area of the river, um, the El Agado basin. And we should mention that um, the Upper Santiago River here, in this highly polluted area, um, the whole industrial corridor is, is spurred by the presence of Mexico's. Um, second or third largest urban conglomeration here, you know, the Guadalajara metropolitan area. I say second or third because sometimes Monterey um, is ahead of us and, and sometimes we're the second largest uh, city in, in the country. But
0: And in addition to that, uh, Cindy, Lake Chapala, can you uh, orient listeners about the importance of that uh, body of water in, in Mexico, in the region?
1: Yes, Lake Chapala is Mexico's largest natural lake. There are uh, some dam reservoirs that are are larger, but Chapala is is the the largest lake in Mexico, and it's um, gone through very severe uh, ups and downs. Uh, It also, of course, is quite highly polluted because the whole basin of the main river that supplies Chapala, the Lerma River. The Lerma River, uh, its origins are near Mexico City in the state of Mexico. And it traverses another very important industrial and agro-industrial region um, from the state of mexico the state of uh, queretaro guanajuato michoacan very intense uh, intensive industrial and agro-industrial activities um, in this whole region and it's also been affected in terms of water quantity water flows there was a very serious crisis in the in the 1950s when the water level reached about 14 percent of the lake's capacities and then another very serious crisis in in the early 2000s when it uh, almost reached uh, levels as low as uh, 1955 and this affects the flows into the Santiago River as well. Uh, they're all controlled via hydraulic infrastructure. There's no sort of natural um, outflows um, following the rain rainfall um, between Chapala and the Santiago River, which is another major challenge in terms of thinking of the restoration of, of the Santiago River basin. And Lake Chapala continues to also be the main source of drinking water for the Guadalajara metropolitan area. So it's a a very complex um, river basin, wider river basin, including the Lerma and and Chapala sections of the basin.
0: And then the um, Okutlan El Salto Industrial Corridor officially was uh, established and populated with an increasing number of, of uh, companies beginning in about the late 60s. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's when it sort of starts to uh, intensify. And the effects in the river started to be very clear in the early 1970s. Um, different um Witnesses and, and authors cited 1973 1974 as the years when there were major fish kills in the river. There had been you know local important local fisheries and uh, the population local population uh, definitely enjoyed the the river as a source of. Uh, not only you know, fish, but recreation, swimming, and there's tourism, et cetera, et cetera. And the major fish kills um, happened in the 1973 and 1974. And we can basically say since that time, water quality um, has never been recovered. Those particular uh, incidences are directly related by the local population to particular factories that that set that set up um, certainly there's no direct evidence from that time um, but in terms of what the population perceived it was uh, two chemical factories um, one American chemical factory Huntsman and a Japanese chemical factory Kimikao, that they relate to these major fish kills that changed um basically changed this this landscape in this territory um you know since that time
0: and you mentioned that community members um up and down the river basin i mean have not just sat idly by um in chapter two of your book chronicle of a struggle the negation and the terror could you talk a little about about um, that chronicle of a struggle and kind of especially how uh, community organizing efforts have unfolded uh, in the last couple of decades, maybe in, in particular?
1: Yeah, the chapter tries to highlight some of the main actions of the local community organizations and what has been the response from state actors and from from industry so you have the first community organization uh, instituto vida that starts off you know in what's it may seem like a sort of a naive or innocent uh, way of approaching the, the issue with letters to the president, you know, saying that this problem is happening in the river. And this started out because they, uh, as parents um, at the local elementary school, they started to see that a lot of children were, were missing school because they were sick. And the parents started uh, talking about this and relating it to what was happening at the river and started with these um Denouncements in in letters, in complaints to the Federal um, Bureau of Environmental Protection, uh, Profepa, and really um, terrible responses from the authorities at that time. Where you know, I tried to um, argue that at the beginning, it seemed possible from government actors just to deny that there was any uh, problem. Certainly that strategy has not been possible to, to maintain as more evidence um, has been made available of the level of pollution. And I talk about one particular uh, incident that happened in 2008 that also galvanized um, protest and made this issue more broadly known uh, in the country, which was a tragic, event where um, a very young child, an eight-year-old boy, fell into um, the confluence of the Elogado Canal and the Santiago River when he was playing with friends who was living in a poor social interest housing development, uh, La Azucena. And he took a few mouthfuls of water And because of that, uh, he became gravely ill. Later that day, his mother took him to hospital, he fell into a coma and died two weeks later. This incident, you know, brought the level of pollution um, starkly to the fore. A lot of these impacts, of course, are are chronic on the health of of the population, but this was, you know, a very dramatic um, event. And it also forced industry to um, respond to what had happened, because there was evidence of um, arsenic, the high levels of arsenic in um, the blood and, and the urine of this uh, young boy, so industry was also called to to account, um, and there was. A protest shutting down the center of of Guadalajara for uh, several hours, anyhow, of uh, the residents of El Salto and Juanacatlán and other Riverside communities. So in this chapter, I go into the very diverse types of actions that local uh, community organizations have taken, not only Instituto Vida, but very importantly, another organization that is still very active to date, Leap of Life or Un Salto de Vida. And, you know, this is include denouncing the situation uh, with ethical tribunals, with the Commission for Environmental Cooperation, which uh, was created in the wake of the north american free trade agreement and um it has included just a wide variety of protests documenting the case uh, visits of special rapporteurs of the united nations etc it's quite a, a long and involved story but it shows both the diversity and creativity of the actions of the local organizations and really the obstinance of industry and state actors in taking responsibility and even um, accepting the evidence that exists of the effects that on the health of the population of this severe environmental pollution.
0: Thanks for that. And then um, we'll come back in just a moment to kind of what you think the outlook might be and what those uh you know community members and, and and movements and organizations are are currently doing and, and challenges faced. Um but um in the ensuing chapters, uh chapter three for instance, unregulated environments in the Santiago River, um could you you mentioned a couple of the companies Um, involved in the pollution of the river over time. Um, But could you talk a little more about um, multinationals in the region and and what you mentioned about this uh, perception that they uh, somehow are going to be, you know, greener or uh, develop in more sustainable ways?
1: Certainly, yeah, that's really the focus of uh, Chapter 5 on corporate sustainability myths and realities, where, um, I mean, in the region, we have some, you know, well-known household brands that, that have uh, factories that I'm, are mentioned, you know, IBM, Hershey's, Honda, uh, Nestle, and you also have a lot of um, transnational corporations that are supplying the branded uh, companies so that they wouldn't be household names but they're um, developing Subsidiaries or... Pre- precursors or, or um, auto parts or etc cetera, etc cetera. so I don't think, you know, not many people have heard of uh, ZF which is a German auto parts manufacturer but maybe the suspension that one has in one's own vehicle uh, perhaps came came from them so we don't you know, know a lot of these uh, companies by name, but um, certainly they're important parts of of the supply chain of um, you know consumer goods. So in this uh, chapter, what I try to look at is what is the discourse around um, these types of corporations, and what can we say empirically? You know, what evidence is there? And what spheres of information exist because, as I mentioned, it's very hard to gain access to um, reliable and sufficient information on um, industry practices. So, you know, I looked at one sphere of information being what the industry says itself Um and looking at their sustainability reports, et cetera, et cetera. Now, one could say, you know, there's those are just advertising materials, and there's not much of interest in there. But I think, you know, understanding, you know, is it greenwashing? What is greenwashing? And um, to what extent does this um, demonstrate or manifest some aspect of what greenwashing is? Uh, is interesting in and of itself but also from a more local perspective you know do these reports contribute to a community's right to know about their uh, exposure to toxins locally um, you know if community actors are apparently one of the important stakeholders of these types of reports for companies what can we glean from them on their environmental performance at the local level. So that was one sphere of information that I looked, uh, looked at. Then I delved a bit deeper on four companies, um, Nestle, Huntsman, uh, American chemical company, Celanese, uh, another American chemical company, and Kimika, a Japanese chemical company. And I chose these four companies because there was some further information available on the actual quality of water they were discharging into the Santiago River because their effluents had been uh, tested in one or more government um, contracted studies on the Santiago River. So there's not a lot of information on the quality of industrial affluence going to the river, but there were several uh, large um, government contracted studies um, that was sort of related to plans to use water downstream in another water supply uh, dam, the Arcidiano Dam, that was sort of the origin of these studies having been undertaken. But thankfully, that dam has not been built, and the studies gave us some information on what is happening in the Santiago River. So I was able to contrast um, some of the discourse here with the some evidence on the the actual, uh, you know, polluting effects of these companies, and then, you know, contrast that also with interviews uh, in several of the cases with um, personnel, environmental health and safety personnel from these factories. Um, In documents were important, as I mentioned, but the interviews with um, both State actors, you know, and environmental and water authorities at the federal, uh, state, and municipal level, also um, with representatives of the environmental health and safety areas of a number of companies, were were very important. And what we see here is, you know, the divergence between this idea of the large transnational corporation that has to uh, comply with its internal environmental regulations and the evidence of ongoing non-compliance uh, in the case of these companies where we have evidence, and even beyond that, the um, you know, one of the cases that I found quite funny was um, Salonese. They were producing cellulose acetate in their factory um, on the shores of the Santiago River until the factory closed in 2019. It uh, had been there since 1947. But it was funny because even in documents obtained from the National Water Commission, they had asked the National Water Commission um for leniency in their discharge permit to be legally able to discharge um, higher levels of pollutants than what is permitted in the very lax Mexican discharge standard. So not only, you know, we have evidence of non-compliance, but they're asking for leniency to be able to pollute above and beyond what is allowed in Mexican legislation. In another case, for Nestle, for example, they state in many of their um, sustainability or shared value, reports shared value is, is the terminology that they use, that they have their own Nestle environmental regulations. Certainly, they don't set out exactly what those regulations are, And when uh, asking directly, they responded that um, actually the idea is just to comply with the regulations in each country where they operate. But in Mexico here, we have clear evidence that they have uh, not complied with Mexican regulations for wastewater discharge on an ongoing basis. So anyhow... It was very important in uh, this chapter to try and sift between the the myths and realities and see how the discourse that uh, states that the transnational corporations are environmentally responsible um, is a main justification for such a weakly enforced and poorly designed system of environmental regulation.
0: And, and, you know, Cindy, ever since I've began to find out about more and more about the Santiago River case and its pollution, I've wondered myself, what are the standards? uh, What exactly are they, you know, for for what's being discharged by industries into that river? And chapter four... um, goes into the national wastewater discharge standard in detail Um, and i wonder if you could uh, mention just a little about that um, and what the latest development with that standard has been
1: sure and and for me this was actually one of the most uh, interesting parts of of the research because you know starting out and certainly having worked with the local community organizations on this issue first uh, from an NGO myself. Uh, It was very clear to me, uh, as it was to certainly many other actors that the national discharge standard needed to be updated, needed to be modified, but it wasn't clear if that was taking place, who were the actors involved, what were the processes, and um, sort of unfolding that story led, To a very um clear case to analyze the power relations between government and industry actors so what we have in mexico is sort of an interesting history where in the late 1980s early 1990s you have um, the approval of 44 Uh, discharge standards that were based on different industry sectors. So you had a standard for, let's say, dairy production and one for uh, petrochemical production, et cetera, et cetera. And those only were in effect, uh, you know, some for a few years, some for even less, because then um, in 1996, we have the approval of what... uh, has been in what was in effect until March of this year, which was a single standard that replaced all 44. This was called a simplification. So now this one single standard was for all wastewater discharged international waters, and it was sort of called a baseline um baseline standard that did not take into account the origin of the discharge. So it didn't matter if you were a dairy factory or a chemical factory or metalworking or what have you, the origin uh, was not taken into account. And it was a very lax standard. One of the actors um, that I cite um, described it very nicely as a myopic standard because there was no single parameter contemplated in the standard that was looking at synthetic organic pollution. And one of the arguments at that time certainly was clear at the time it was approved that, um, you know, this was a major oversight. One of the arguments at that time, um, you know, and this is shortly after the uh, signing of of NAFTA, and this was lauded by actors such as, you know, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development as Wonderful, you know, to have this simplification of wastewater standards. But at the time, they said, okay, you know, this standard doesn't contemplate certain specific contaminants the different sectors are going to be generating, but we'll put particular discharge conditions in the individual discharge permits. So that will help, um, you know, to correct for the deficiencies of the standard itself. And I mentioned this because in um, the preceding chapter, in chapter three, where I'm looking at um, in a lot of detail, the inspections and and permits um, in the river basin and and the actions of the National Water Commission. So when I looked at about 50 permits um, for industries in the Santiago River Basin, and this is uh, true in other regions of the country, the particular discharge conditions were not used basically um, to correct for the deficiencies of the general wastewater standard because, um, in the particular discharge conditions, you have the same lax and scant number of parameters as in the main discharge standard. So, we have this standard from 1996 and a process starts in 2007 to have this standard change and what was important to understand was who decides and how are decisions reached on changing the standard and you know, some of the environmental activists that I was working with, and uh, this was my thinking as well, thought, okay, this is a legislative process, but no, this is not a legislative process. This is a faculty of the executive branch of government, in particular in the Ministry of Environment and Natural Resources, Semarnat, and you have a committee that oversees the development of new standards and the modification of existing standards, which is called Comarnat. And strangely enough, of the members of this committee, basically half are industry chambers and associations. So um, in Chapter 4, I delve into the process uh, through which there was debate around the changes of this um National Discharge Standard, which the process, as I mentioned, started in, in 2007 and, um, you know, did not reach fruition until um, 2021 because of a lot of opposition from industry. And I look at the practices within this committee, how industry has veto power and how, um, Basically, um, in many cases and over many years, the general practices were to develop um, regulations via negotiation or via consensus with the industry associations and industry actors. Certainly, uh, consultations with affected parties on a standard is one thing, but I think um, giving them veto power Um, giving industry actors veto power over modifications of environmental standards is uh, certainly a level of empowerment that is not conducive to protecting uh, environments and local community health. So that is basically um, the main topic of of Chapter 4. And at the end, we see that a a new environmental standard was, in fact, um, approved, Uh, It came into effect finally in in March of this year, March of 2023. And it does include some improvements, a few parameters that will hopefully better control at some point in the future toxic contaminations. It includes acute toxicity, chemical oxygen demand, some parameters that give us a better idea of what uh, industry is is discharging. But we face again, the main challenge of enforcement, which is um, one of the topics that I deal with in chapter three. And on that front, Unfortunately, the panorama is, is not positive because we've seen even in more recent years um, with the current federal administration, the number of uh, inspections of the National Water Commission dropped by 72%. So it's a complex panorama, uh, even though we do have a new uh, discharge standard coming into effect this year.
0: And what do you see as uh, the way forward? I mean, you just kind of alluded to it, but um, in the book you mentioned really the need to reconceptualize um, maybe the approach in terms of of the analysis by movements and scholars in terms of um, really – Reevaluating the situation in terms of uh, human life and life in, in, in ecosystems, life of the river, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, you know, very obvious conclusions of this research is that, you know, a situation like the Santiago River is only possible by devaluing certain human lives. And you know, these double standards that uh, industry takes advantage of at the global level, um, seeking out, well, you know, obviously low wages and, uh, you know, flexible labor conditions are certainly um, a main attractor for industry, but in lax environmental regulations are also uh, a main attractor. And you know, that means that certain human lives um, continue to be devalued for this situation to to continue. It is a challenge to think of how things will change. There has been a major state-level strategy focused on, quote, reviving the Santiago River. And while it has been deficient and not successful, I would say it is a testament to... You know the strength of the local organizations to have placed in the center of public debate the challenge of restoring the Santiago River, and I think that those um, local actors who have many allies, um, you know, beyond the region, and also in uh, academic researchers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, you know, placing the restoration and revival of this river as a place of life, um, I think is key to changing the dynamics of power relations because, you know, certainly state government level, federal government level strategies are within the ongoing pragmatic logics of uh, the status quo. So there, you know, Certainly it is the, the ongoing conflict and challenge of local actors. I think the, the only uh, way that the situation of the Santiago River will will change is through um, ongoing protest and uh, denouncement basically, and uh, hopefully a greater ally building, network building um, in which I think as academics, we are, we also have a role. I certainly uh, don't see myself, you know, just sitting by by the sideline on the sidelines. Let's say, uh, I think that uh, looking at a case such as this, it is uh, my obligation um, certainly to become involved as well.
0: It is a remarkable book, Sewer of Progress. Um... Professor McCullough, what are you uh, working on next these days? Where is your uh, research taking you next?
1: Well, it's not taking me too far out of this region, but looking at water challenges in, in a few other directions, um, particularly related to, to drinking water supply um, and drinking water quality, both in terms of um over-exploitation of groundwater and the challenge um, that that brings in terms of um, contaminants such as arsenic and, and fluoride. And also looking at now um, the option that is being explored in several large Mexican cities, including Guadalajara, including Leon, of the um, potable reuse of treated wastewater. And I'm particularly concerned about um, how peri-urban areas, uh, marginalized peri-urban areas are receiving um, both the poorest service quality in terms of intermittent water service, but also the poorest quality of water and how um, the gradient of water quality um, is unequal across the urban areas. So I'm looking more at urban water services and and uh, the future challenges of access to clean water in mexico
0: well cindy mccullough we appreciate your time today the book is sewer of progress corporations institutionalized corruption and in the struggle for the santiago river just published by the mit press 2023 thanks for joining us everybody on new books in latin american studies.